Hello, and welcome to the third and final episode of the December 2022 BV Online Podcast, your slice of genuine Dorset rural life. I'm Jenny Devitt. And hello from me, Terry Bennett. And in this final episode of the year... Mike Chapman of the North Dorset Lib Dems compares aspects of the current government to a certain jungle-based television programme. Ken Huggins reflects on the importance of the UK producing more of the food we eat. Pat Osborne on the wider elements of the Qatar World Cup. Roger Guttridge asks whether it really was the profligate Honourable John Damer who was buried in his family vault in Milton Abbey Church in 1776. Rupert Hardy brings us a short history of button-making in Dorset. Steve Masters of the Dorset Wildlife Trust urges us to go down to the woods in winter. Wildlife writer Jane Adams reveals where to find the humble bumblebee, even in the depths of winter. And I'll have an interview with Kaz Richards of Dorset Food and Drink. And Andrew Livingston talks Christmas turkeys. Mike Chapman of the Liberal Democrats Blackmore Vale writes as follows. Well, this 12-year Bush-Tucker trial is beginning to come to a head. I'm no celebrity, but what with Royal Mail, nurses, ambulance and rail strikes, the cost of food, energy, services, you name it, and it's up. The immigration mess, the ineptitude of Brexit implementation, water quality, social care misery. I'm minded to get out of here. We won't go, though. We will persist and adapt. We will listen and work with people with shared values to define a much better future. The thought leadership of the nation does not reside with the Conservative Party. Time and again, their focus, their whole strategy, is to cling on to the people who voted for them, a minority of the population. There are two hard years ahead, though. Despite having less than any mandate at all, this government will cling on until the last possible moment. It will continue to use the tactics we've already seen in the autumn statement of postponing the more acute funding pain until after the next election. Remember that note left by Labour in 2010, there is no money. We will continue to see swathes of Tory MPs, including the new crop, declining to fight again. In sum, they know they are losing, so they are setting up the next government to fail, and meanwhile they are looking after their own. They are frail, fraught, and full of fractious factions. Vote them off the show now, I say. So to the positives. At our annual general meeting, we were delighted to welcome Sarah Dyke, Somerset councillor and prospective parliamentary candidate for Somerset and Froome. It was inspiring to hear how our neighbours are bringing new, radical ideas to bear, including, for example, the principles of donut economics. We are familiar with economic models based on the flow of work and money between employers and employees, which result in the supply of, and demand for, goods and services. Simple enough. The problem is, we're trashing our environment as we go, and leaving a trail of inequality and want in our wake. Donut economics seems a fair social foundation for the economy, whilst not breaking our planet's ecological constraints. We need to maximise the reuse of goods and services and properly harness and recognise the value of the unpaid inputs we make as parents, in running our households, in helping others in our communities and at work. This isn't the workerati at work. This is the sustainable future of the human race at stake. Without thinking like this, the nationalists... The plutocrats, the factionalists, get to win. They do not create, they destroy. Witness poor Ukraine. Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party writes, With Putin's warmongering having further exposed the fragility of our food supply, it's worth reflecting on another Vladimir, 
Lenin, who wrote over a hundred years ago that every society is three meals away from chaos. During the COVID pandemic, people fought in shops over loo rolls. Imagine the reaction if we were to run short of food. Some Tory politicians think the UK doesn't need to worry about growing its own food because we're relatively wealthy and can buy what we need from other countries. North Dorset's MP Simon Hall recently wrote about the need to sustainably increase UK food production, but he focused entirely on livestock farming and claimed there is no argument to sustain a decline in the livestock sector. West Dorset MP Chris Loder has similarly written about how effective pasture land is as a carbon sink and said that science does not support a plant-based diet. I respectfully suggest they both need to look more closely at the evidence, perhaps starting with DEFRA's reports. Livestock is presently the major part of Dorset's farming industry, but we can and must change that. At present, we have to import so much else of what we eat. Animal farming is a hugely inefficient way of producing food, using large areas of land to produce relatively little food. Around 71% of UK land is used for agriculture, and 72% of that is grassland for grazing. Most of UK-grown wheat, barley and oats is used for animal feed, while we import almost half our fresh vegetables and 84% of our fruit. That cannot continue. With the changing climate, we cannot rely on other countries to be able to grow what we need. We have to recognise that farming is the most important occupation, bar none. Farmers must be properly rewarded for their efforts, and we need to encourage younger people into the profession. We must incentivise farming that produces more of the food varieties we need, and in organic ways that regenerate the health of our depleted soils, make our waterways clean again, increase biodiversity and capture carbon. It can be done, and our healthy future depends on it. Pat Osborne for North Dorset Labour writes as follows. It won't have escaped anyone's attention that there's a World Cup going on in Qatar right now. The first World Cup I remember was Mexico 86 when Maradona's Hand of God was etched into my memory forever. But as a trade unionist and LGBTQ plus and feminist ally, this is the first World Cup since then that I actually considered not watching. Ever since I was a kid, football has formed an important part of my weekly ritual. When the old man was still alive, he would call every Sunday evening to talk about the football results. It's often said that men, particularly those over a certain age, aren't good at expressing their feelings. But through those exchanges, Dad and I would get a pretty good understanding if there was something bothering one of us. And I like to think that we always found a way to give one another the support we needed. Sometimes we find a different way to communicate. Ours was football. For me and many other football fans, the beautiful game creates a prism through which we can project our own beliefs and values and put them to the test in a uniquely safe and public space. Perhaps that's why some have condemned the action of sportsmen wishing to express their own beliefs and values by shining a light on injustice. Perhaps they realise their own values are destined to fail the test when the lads on the pitch that carry the weight of their hopes on their shoulders make it abundantly clear that they stand against their bigotry and hatred and division. In the end, I decided to watch. I decided to support my country and the English values of solidarity and inclusion that our national team represents. I am proud that they continue to take the knee. I am proud for them for using their platform to shine a light on racism 
sexism and homophobia, and the rights of workers building stadiums. I am proud to be English. Come on, England. Local history. Almost 250 years after the funeral of the young Milton Abbey heir, questions remain about whose body was actually buried. Roger Guttridge reports. According to the Milton Abbas Parish Register, the funeral of the Honourable John Damer took place on the 21st of August, 1776. Amid much pomp and wailing, the body of Lord Milton's eldest son and heir was laid to rest in the family vaults beneath the north transept of Milton Abbey Church. But were they? Milton Abbas villagers had serious doubts. Persistent rumours suggested that the young Damer not only survived his own funeral, but was often seen out and about in later years. There's also cause to suspect that the coffin that today sits beneath the memorial to Lord and Lady Milton may contain something other than their son's mortal remains. As a young man, John Damer was the very definition of profligate. His costly pastimes included gambling and horse racing, and his estranged wife Anne's biographer, Percy Noble, described him as one of a wild, foolish set about London, whose whole glory in life was centred in the curl of a coat collar and the brim of a hat. Noble added, These young fops made up for a want of wit by the most extravagant display of ridiculous eccentricity. Three times a day, Damer appeared wearing a brand new suit, and after his alleged death, his wardrobe was sold for the colossal sum of £15,000. That's roughly £1.3 million today. He ran up debts estimated at £70,000. That's over £6 million in 2022 money. Well over twice the annual income of his father's Milton Abbey estate. By 1776, his creditors were closing in, and Lord Milton, who also had two other extravagant sons, had run out of patience and was refusing to bail him out. In the early hours of the 15th of August, 32-year-old Damer apparently shot himself in the head at the Bedford Arms in Covent Garden. At an inquest in the same pub later that day, a 22-man jury concluded that he had killed himself while not of sound mind, memory or understanding, but lunatic and distracted. But the circumstances were not straightforward. Innkeeper John Robinson explained that Damer had earlier dined in an upstairs room along with five entertainers he'd requested, four women who sang and a blind fiddler named Richard Burnett. The ladies left at 3am, after which Burnett was asked to leave the room and return in 15 minutes. Twenty minutes later, the sightless fiddler told Robinson that Damer had not spoken since his return to the room and that there was a disagreeable smell he thought might be from a candle that had fallen over. When the landlord joined him, however, he found Damer dead in his chair, bleeding from a head wound with a discharged pistol at his feet. On a table was a suicide note which stated, The people of the house are not to blame for what has happened, which was my own act. Damer's house steward, John Armitage, told the coroner his master had been in oppressed spirits of late, and Burnett confirmed he was not his usual cheerful self. If there's anything in the stories that Damer did not die that day, he must surely have had an accomplice or two and a replacement body waiting in the wings. This would not have been difficult to arrange, especially if the body was borrowed to be returned later. 
1776, it was normal for a coroner and jury to view a body, but it's fair to assume that none of them knew Damer personally, so would not have known if it was not his. Given that Burnett was blind, it appears that Robinson and Armitage were the only people in a position to identify Damer's body. Both had served him loyally for years. Could it be that they also cooperated in some elaborate scheme to fake his death? On the face of it, that is no more than speculation. A hundred years later, however, one Frederick Fane of Fordingbridge added substance to the story. During a visit to Milton Abbey, Fane heard about the legend of the bogus funeral. As it happened, his visit coincided with some repair work on the north transept, and the clerk of works invited him into the vaults, which were usually inaccessible. Among numerous coffins was one bearing John Damer's name and the date of his death, and Fane was invited to lift it. This I found impossible, due to its extraordinary weight, he later recalled. Invited to lift a second coffin, Fane did so without the slightest exertion. There, sir, the clerk told him, this one contains a body gone to dust. The other one is full of stones, as it was supposed by the old villagers would be the case if any opportunity occurred for investigation. Once the works were complete, the vaults were resealed and their coffins left to sit, undisturbed indefinitely. Perhaps one day a need will arise to open the vaults once again. Until it does, the mystery of John Damer's death will continue to remain a mystery. Rupert Hardy, chairman of the North Dorset CPRE, has been exploring the long history of the Dorset button. It all goes back to Abraham Case, a soldier who fought in the wars of religion that ravaged Europe from the 16th to 18th centuries. He saw soldiers replace buttons on their uniforms by twisting a piece of cloth over a form and fastening it with a thread, but he may have been influenced in part by Brussels lace. He was also impressed by the skills in the buttoner's art, seen in the work of the northern French and Belgian button makers. He realised that Dorset had all the raw materials readily at hand, fabric, discs cut from the horns of Dorset horned sheep, and thread. Although originally from the Cotswolds, Abraham married a local girl. He set up his business in 1622 in Shaftesbury, going on to open depots in Beer Regis and other mid-Dorset villages. The catalyst for growing demand was the change in men's fashions at this time, from the old doublet and hose to a more modern waistcoat and breeches, which required buttons, of course. By the middle of the 18th century, nearly 700 women and children worked for the case company alone, while up to 4,000 buttoners were employed in the industry around Shaftesbury and 3,000 around Blandford. The workforce were mainly outworkers. Women and retired farm workers were able to make buttons from home. In North Dorset, button making was the biggest industry, albeit a cottage one, and second only to farming in employment. Tracy Chevalier's book, Burn Bright, features a character, Maisie, who makes money from buttony. The first buttons were called high tops and were mostly used on women's dresses. The horn disc was covered by material and made into a conical button using a needle and thread. Flatter versions were called Dorset knobs and were possibly the inspiration for the local baked biscuit of that name. In 1731, a Yorkshireman, John Clayton, was brought in to reorganise the business after a bad fire at the Beer Regis depot. He used his contacts with Birmingham wire manufacturers to switch to metal rings, which were cheaper than horn. 
Some of these buttons were made using wire twisted on a spindle called singletons. Other variations using a ring and thread were called Blandford cartwheels. The town's earlier Huguenot lace industry was by then in decline, but the button makers had found a new use for the fine lace thread. The highest quality buttons were mounted on pink card and exported, while seconds came on blue. The best patterners could make a gross a day, earning three shillings and sixpence, much more than the day rate for an agricultural labourer. The quality of Dorset buttons was noticed in London, where high tops soon adorned the waistcoats of courtiers. There is speculation that Charles I went to his execution wearing a waistcoat made with Dorset buttons. Much later, Queen Victoria had a dress trimmed with Dorset knobs. Cartwheels are probably the most popular buttons made today. Sadly, the Industrial Revolution destroyed many cottage industries, including Dorset's button making. Benjamin Saunders began making machined buttons from his London workshop and took out a patent in 1813 for his fabric buttons. The death knell finally came with John Aston's patented button-making machine, which was demonstrated to great effect at the Great Exhibition of 1851. There was no way the Dorset buttoners could compete. There was acute distress across mid-Dorset, and from Shaftesbury alone, 350 families were sent to the colonies at government expense. The situation had been made worse by the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1840 and the arrival of cheap food from the colonies, bringing in its wake a long-lasting depression in rural Dorset in the late 19th century. Farmers were forced to mechanise to compete and laid off thousands of agricultural labourers. Thomas Hardy's tragic novels of rural hardship were based in this period, and the effects can be seen in the parish censuses of that time. At Winterbourne Thompson, where I live, there were 53 inhabitants in 1841, but by 1891 this had halved. Those who left either emigrated or went to work in the factories in the north. Florence, the dowager Lady Lees, tried to resurrect the button industry, learning from women who had been button makers long before. In 1908, she set up a small business making parliamentary buttons for Dorset MPs in the constituency colours, but it died with the onset of World War I. Today, Dorset buttons are a heritage craft, but there has been some renewed interest. In particular, Anna McDowell of Henry's Buttons near Shaftesbury aims to keep the history and skill of the Dorset button industry alive organising workshops and talks. There is a permanent display of Dorset buttons at the Gold Hill Museum in Shaftesbury, and I recommend Thelma John's book, Dorset Buttons, hand-stitched in Dorset for over 300 years. Wildlife. As winter sets in, Dorset Wildlife Trust's reserves ecologist Steve Masters urges us all to go down to the woods today. As winter's cloak settles on the British countryside and wisps of mist float among the treetops, a walk among some of our oldest organisms is a must. Entering the woodland winter realm evokes a calming sense of contentedness. As you descend deeper into the recesses of canopy and understory, you retreat from the elements outside, whether environmental or anthropogenic. Immerse yourself and let your imagination run wild with the history of these most ancient of habitats, the large herbivores of Britain's past sheltering among the trees and grazing in woodland clearings, our distant relatives coppicing and working the woods for fuel and building materials, and for many of us of a certain age, Enid Blyton's faraway tree sheltering its magical folk. 
These old, mainly broad-leaved woodland habitats in Dorset are home to an incredibly diverse range of wildlife. The towering canopy of trees, often oak, ash or beech, supports thousands of species. In winter, birdsong is scarce, but the crisp air is occasionally pierced by the high-pitched peeping of troops of long-tailed tits flitting from tree to tree in search of food. Although deer in some areas currently pose a threat to the natural regeneration of woodlands, winter is a good time to see and hear them, especially as they rut, as the vegetation dies back. As you walk, take time to contemplate the wood-wide web beneath your feet, a combination of fungi, bacteria and roots, all interconnected. This network allows the altruistic sharing of food and communications between trees and other plants. In winter, though, you may need to delve a little deeper for your wildlife fix and notice the more introverted of woodland species. An important cog in the woodland ecosystem, fungi are key to recycling organic matter and helping to lock up carbon. Each time you place your foot on the woodland soil, you're standing on miles of underground fungal mycorrhiza. What we see above ground is just the fruiting body of the fungi. One spectacular, iconic species to keep an eye out for at the moment is the fly agaric, with its bright red cap and bright white stalk. Its colour is nature's warning of its toxic nature. These ancient plants, relics of times when dinosaurs still roamed the earth, are often overlooked. Their reproduction is reliant on moisture, so they often inhabit the shadier parts of woodland. Sometimes they'll be perched high above your head, growing epiphytically on moss-covered tree branches. One of the most common species to look out for on your winter walk is soft-shield fern, a typical shuttlecock form growing on the woodland floor. They can be large plants, but their surprisingly delicate fronds are divided several times to give a soft, feathery appearance. One of the oldest lineages of plants on our planet, this diminutive floral is abundant across our woodlands, often forming cushioned mats across trees, rock and woodland floor. Their amazing structures are often difficult to see with the naked eye, but are really brought to life with a magnifying glass. One species which you're likely to come across is mouse-tailed moss, growing around the base of trees. It gives a lovely cushioned spot to sit on for that coffee break. We're lucky in Dorset to have a wide variety of woodlands. Dorset Wildlife Trust looks after a number of them, Powerstock Common and Brackett's Coppice in West Dorset, Killwood and Stonehead Down in the Purbecks, Girdler's Coppice and Ashleywood in North Dorset. So, take some time, find a spot where the signal is strong, connect yourself into the wood wide web and down your load. Find out more about Dorset Wildlife Trust's woodland nature reserves from dorsetwildlifetrust.org.uk forward slash nature hyphen reserves. Wildlife writer Jane Adams is on the lookout for a winter wild bee fix. Even in December you can find them, she says. I'm not a massive fan of winter. With the onset of the colder, shorter days and lower light levels, it isn't long before I'm itching to see some summer wildlife again. I miss the insects. The very thought of bees humming and butterflies flickering across the veg patch is enough to make me feel warm and fuzzy inside. But did you know you can still get a wild bee fix in the depths of winter? Even on Christmas Day, you just need to go in search of winter-active bumblebees. 
This isn't as balmy as it sounds, I promise. Typically, bumblebee nests die out at the end of summer. The new queens have hatched, left the nest, mated and gone into hibernation. But one species of bee has been trying something different. Since the late 1990s, people who study insects have been spotting buff-tailed bumblebees flying and feeding in the middle of winter. It appears that if they have a reliable source of food, a safe place to nest and a mild winter, some buff-tailed queens can set up a winter nest instead of hibernating. Although severe and prolonged cold weather would doubtless kill them, these tough bees can fly at temperatures of nearly zero degrees centigrade, so they survive short cold snaps. One problem they do face is the lack of wild native flowers. But as luck would have it, we've been unintentionally solving this problem for them. Planted in our gardens, parks and around supermarkets, and bearing a mass of yellow pollen-rich flowers throughout winter, is a veritable bumblebee buffet called Mahonia. It's a common, non-native, rather prickly winter-flowering shrub. Now, if you were to trundle up north, you're still unlikely to bump into a winter-active bumblebee. But in the climate-changed south, especially here in Dorset, where we're experiencing very mild winters with fewer and fewer days of snow and frost, you stand a very good chance of seeing one. So the next time you encounter some bright yellow flowers, take a closer look. You might find a black, white and yellow striped reminder of summer softly humming to itself, even on Christmas Day. And do submit any sightings to the Bees, Wasps and Ants Recording Society and there's a fascinating downloadable BWARS information sheet on winter active bumblebees. Today I'm at Dorset County Hall in Dorchester and I have with me Kaz Richards of Dorset Food and Drink. Hello Kaz. Hello Terry. Now tell us a little bit about what Dorset Food and Drink is actually all about. Well, Dorset Food and Drink was set up in 2013 after the foot and mouth crisis to give people confidence to shop again and have confidence in local food that's sort of grown so beautifully and made beautifully in this wonderful county. The project sits underneath the area of Outstanding Natural Beauty, or AOMB, and it was from there, really, we went out and did lots of fairs and festivals and talked about local food, got to know um, a whole range of wonderful local producers. And on the back of that, we created a membership. So the membership was open to farmers, growers, brewers, bakers. And we've um, now got over 140 members. Um, and that includes very small businesses up to people like Kingston Moorwood. We've got lovely people like Chococo and the Hive Beach Company and small producers like like Lizzie Baking Bear, Chocolate Art House. Yeah, everything really, from fish to fowl to all sorts. Quite a range of different members. And what do you actually do for them? Is it a support group or do you help in more practical ways? What, what's the role of Dorset Food and Drink? Well, the membership was set up to help producers with their business models if they wanted it, with social media if they wanted it. I think back in the early days, social media wasn't such a big thing as it was as it is now. So we used to do little networking food bites to help them with that if they needed it. And also to help them with things like getting um, a good deal on public liability insurance, where to buy a good gazebo, help with grants, help with training if they needed it. And also just to network with each other to sort of learn about 
what each other's doing and pick up good ideas for, for good practice and things like that. The current membership structure is bronze, silver and gold. The model, I think, we feel needs adjusting since COVID, since the pandemic, has changed everything for us. You mentioned the, the pandemic. In what way, particularly, do you think it affected local food producers in Dorset? It was such a shock, really. I mean, we, we all knew it was come. You know, we heard about the pandemic. We knew what might be coming. And then when we were all sort of pushed into lockdown, it was like, oh, my gosh, what then? But thankfully, a lot of our members turned their business models around and they started supplying their local communities with bread, in in Lizzie Bakingbird's case, free bread for those who wanted it, delivering food parcels and just doing loads of stuff for each other. So the community support was amazing. Um, I was astonished, humbled by what our producers and members did for their communities. And I mean, that still still brings a tear to my eye now, really, when you think about what they did. It was just amazing. The public loved it. And there was a big swell towards supporting local. And we and out of the pandemic, we created pop-up markets to get the producers and our members out there trading again. Some of them, unfortunately, didn't survive the pandemic and their businesses went under, which is always a shame. And the hospitality industry was particularly hit, you know, with people being furloughed and not being able to come back. But the pop-up markets really helped. Um, we got to know a huge range of new producers who we met along the way and popped up with us. And we were offered fantastic venues to pop up in. in, For example, the Tank Museum, we popped up there. The Noth Fort in Weymouth and the the Borough Gardens here in Dorchester were particularly good supporters of us and and let us trade there. Didn't didn't need a pitch fee from them. We just went there once a month, which was great. And have you seen any of that carrying on? Is that still...? It still hangs on a little bit, but quite honestly, I think we all knew that people would start returning to the shops, and, and I can absolutely understand that. I mean, there are a lot of local shops in Dorset, and lots of farm shops, of course, and uh, other outlets that do stock lots of Dorset produce, which is really great to see. I mean, even some of the big supermarkets have special aisles for Dorset food, which is great. Now, your website is quite comprehensive. Um, if people want to specifically support local producers or local retailers of Dorset foods, they can go to your website, can't they, and find particular individual shops that will do so? They absolutely can. I mean, depending on what you're looking for, I mean, all our members are listed. It's not an exhaustive list by any means, but the website does just list our members who are paid members. So yeah, depending on what you're looking for, preserves, meat, drinks, wine... It's all there, just click the category. And also if we've got some hospitality businesses, so if you're looking for somewhere to stay or things to do, we've got an events page as well, so you can click on that, find out what's going on, and people can upload their events. Yeah, so there's quite a lot going on. But once again, that's another thing that we'll be changing next year, I think, just to make it a little bit simpler. But yeah, you can come there and have a look. It is a one-stop shop. And in that way, they will be supporting local producers and local... Absolutely, yeah, because a lot of these producers, they will have seen perhaps uh, the Sherbourne Market or the Poundbury Independent. A lot of our members trade there. The other lovely thing is that people, when they go out and go to markets and other events, they do get to know the producers, which I always think is really nice to meet the people who make bake, grow and do all these wonderful things. As it's coming up to Christmas, obviously, what's your tips to spice up Christmas dinner in a Dorset kind of way? Can you give us any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, this year, I think if you haven't heard of them, the Wasabi Company are really good. They are based in Dorset. They're part of the suite of companies owned by Tom Amory, who owns the Bracer Butchers and also the Watercress Company. But the Wasabi Company is the only company in the UK currently growing wasabi root. And the range of things that they make and create with that is wonderful. So everything from wasabi mustard and mayonnaise. I would say try 
try the wasabi mustard. That's really interesting and really different. That'll go really nicely with your Christmas meats. And then if you want something a little bit different too, that's still kind of looking to the east for inspiration, the Wasabi Company also make a lovely yuzu cello, which is a, it's very much like the limoncello. But the yuzu is like, it's called the queen of the citrus and it's like a huge, a sort of very big lemon. It's absolutely delicious. I, mean, I can't tell you how nice that is just over ice or... That makes a lovely, refreshing Christmas tipple. But yeah, look for something a little bit different this year. Splendid. And Christmas gift ideas. I mean, for those like myself who haven't thought too much about Christmas yet, any thoughts on local produced goods that would make a good Christmas present? Oh gosh, where do you start? I mean, obviously that we all know that there is a cost of living crisis. And we are mindful of the fact that, you know, people are going to be spending less. But you don't have to spend a lot actually to make someone very happy or put a smile on someone's face. So we've got lovely producers from our membership and across Dorset that make really beautiful bars of chocolate. I mean, you've got Chococo and Chocolate Art House. So a little bar of something lovely or a bag of chocolate buttons, perhaps matched with some lovely coffee coffee beans. There was a wonderful company that came to trade with us at Athelhampton House this year for our Christmas fair. They're called South Paddocks and they um, have a herd of alpaca and Katie brought with her lots of alpaca wool products that are made from her flock or herd. So um, wonderful alpaca wool socks, I'd say. And also she had these lovely wire hearts that you can hang up in the garden full of alpaca hair that the birds will absolutely love to make nests with. And then, of course, we've got, you know, wines from Furley and Langham and Bride Valley. So there's a lot to choose from. But, yeah, you don't have to spend a lot. Perhaps a nice bit of charcuterie or something like that. Like I say, you can make up nice bundles of things. Kaz, thank you very much for your time today. You're very welcome. And that's all for this last BV Online podcast for 2022. We hope you'll be joining us again next year when we start in mid-January. Until then, we hope you have a very merry and cheerful Christmas and a happy new year. So it's goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt. And until next time, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.